Rachel Deere, host of today's program, COVID-19 Critical Care, What Providers Need to Know. This is the May 29th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series, COVID-19 Keeping Up with a Moving Target. Thank you for joining us. As a reminder, we are providing twice-weekly 15-minute webcasts and podcasts featuring the latest news, treatment updates, and clinical considerations, as well as answering your questions about COVID-19. These will be available on Wednesday evening and Friday morning. Sign up at covid19.dkbmed.com to be sure you get the latest updates. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CME and CE information. To attest for CME or CE credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There you will find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CME and CE programs on a wide range of topics. Slides from today's presentation, as well as all previous presentations, can be found in the Resource Center. Today's learning objectives are, explain three challenges institutions face when COVID-19 was first recognized, discuss two causes of the financial difficulties hospitals face today, and identify at least one priority for institutions going forward. Again, I'm very happy to introduce Sue Hansen, a clinical nurse specialist at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. This is the first part of Sue's series, Camp COVID. What have we learned so far? Sue, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And before we begin, I'd also like to thank the generous support of DKB Med, Postgraduate Institute of Medicine, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. So Camp COVID, lessons learned. This phrase came about and was coined by someone, I'm not quite sure who, but it quickly took off in our institution on what we call our COVID ICU unit. And I just wanted to share a few pictures with you. Um, this has changed so much over the last three and a half months. It went from eight beds quickly to 20 beds and then to 30 beds during the height of our COVID census. And so much has been learned here that I really wanted to share with you all. I'm sure you've been speaking to other institutions as well, but it's always good to gain insight from as many institutions as possible. So going forward, we can hopefully plan better and anticipate earlier uh, for when these pandemics come about. We're gonna review management of COVID-19 in various facets. There, there's just too much to cover, but I tried to pick certain topics that were challenging for us. We're gonna go over post-acute care, um, some insight for what healthcare workers were going through. And when I say healthcare workers, I mean everybody working in healthcare down to clinical engineering and environmental services. And then finally review some next steps going forward. So management, this encompasses emergency management, capacity, supply, patient throughput, clinical management of patients, infection prevention, and as always, financial planning and financial recovery, because we know this has really taken a toll on institutions as well. So emergency management, when I was trying to look for a picture that kind of described this in a nutshell, this is what I found. And it's just so apropos, you know, from the beginning, we felt like we were having to build a sinking ship and we had to do it fast. And we had to learn how to do it because we weren't shipbuilders. 
but this was a feeling that we had every day, I would have to say, for the last three months, up until about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, when things started to slow down. We learned a great deal. Um, we were fortunate enough to be a trauma facility, so we did have some processes uh, in place with the county and the state on dis disaster and emergency preparedness. But there's some things that we just truly did not anticipate because we never had to grapple with something like this before. A couple of those ideas that we never really thought about in depth was um, how quickly we would deplete supplies, discharging patients back to facilities that no longer accepted them and what to do, triaging patients, uh, the impact it would have on our entire city, let alone state. Um, homelessness, we are a safety net hospital. We have a large homeless population. And how do we screen and shelter those folks? Um, so many things came about that we had to quickly try and find solutions to. We still haven't, we're still working on it, but I think we've learned a lot of long-term lessons that hopefully we will have time over the summer to put and solidify some of those processes in place that may function and work better um, if and when we should have a next surge. I think a good part of pandemic preparedness is reflecting on your lessons learned, but I also think pandemic preparedness should be formatted in the form of what do you do when things are going relatively well? In conventional times, what do you do when things are getting a little stressful or supplies are getting a little short? We can call that contingent circumstances. And what do you do when you are having your back up against the wall, institutions have their back against the wall, and all the departments within the institution are really running thin? What do you do? And I think if we can plan under those three headings, I think we'll be better prepared in the fall and for any future pandemics. Some of the things that I think we could do better at, again, is how can we treat our homeless population where they're at? How can we keep them sheltered sufficiently and in a safe and a clean environment while they are maybe quarantining for 14 days? How can we improve our fatality management? You know, we had to develop new protocols for those patients who have died, but their families want to carry out services for them. How can we help families do that better? How can we connect with our community partners in a better way so we don't run out on those equipment and supplies as quickly as we did? So we have a better understanding of what our resources are in our city, in our county, versus just what's in our own healthcare facility itself. I also think that planning should include the private sector. They have a wealth of resources and can they help us with the planning needs in terms of financial support, in terms of supplies and creativity. I bring this up because we are connected with, with a very large university. It's a fantastic university. I think that maybe we could have harnessed the School of Engineering and all those engineering students to help us with some of the supply challenges that we had because we had to create our own supplies sometimes. And then also, I think uh, the community would be helpful in helping us maintain the continuity of operations and with information exchange. We just can't continue on like we did for the last three months. I think we did a fantastic job, and I'm only speaking for my institution, but I do think there's a better way to harness our resources in the community and the private sector going forward to maybe help smooth out some of the bumps a little bit. 
because again, viruses and pandemics are here to stay. They're not going away. And I believe COVID is here to stay. It's not going away. We will see a surge. We just don't know when. And we don't know if it will be worse than the first surge. So I think we have a lot to work on, but I also think that uh, we have a lot of resources to start with as well. And lastly, with regards to emergency management uh, and planning, I also think in our planning of the next wave, the next pandemic, the next surge, I think we need to plan our recovery. I think we're doing that right now and we're scrambling again because hospitals have to function. And right now, the last I saw in the news was that upwards of 300 facilities are having to furlough staff and shut down and mergers aren't happening. This takes a toll on healthcare staff as well takes a toll on our patients who have not been in here. And additionally, this next wave of COVID-19, we're gonna to have to incorporate our normal operations into the pandemic in order to prevent the effects of trying to recover quickly, because we know recovery does not happen quickly. It can take months to years. And how can we mitigate that? How can we uh, lessen the impact of that recovery through proper planning? I believe we can. I just think we need to do it ahead of time, pre-pandemic, pre-disaster, pre-emergency, and not post. And I think we've learned a lot of lessons and uh, we're gonna be able to do that better. Capacity management, I think this is one of the departments that really, really struggled. They're a small department. Most, uh, the majority of the places have their medical stores, their supply chain, especially smaller healthcare facilities in the basement. They're kind of isolated. They have a small workforce, but their workforce took a huge impact. Trying to function with four or five people during the day and maintain the amount of supplies in a, in a small space is extremely difficult for those folks. In addition, capacity in terms of patient capacity and patient flow. We did a pretty good job in identifying the COVID units and where these patients were going to be housed on two separate units. But when we filled up those units, what's gonna be our next COVID unit and how does that dovetail into our normal patient population? How can we separate the two and deliver care safely? If we need to cohort patients, how do we do that? What's the criteria for cohorting? We quickly developed the criteria, but then once one patient was discharged, we ran into another hurdle that we had to jump is cleaning that cohorted room with the other COVID positive patients still in it. Environmental services had a difficult time going into those rooms. They didn't wanna go into those rooms. They didn't wanna clean those rooms. So that room was left to be a single room and that left an empty bed, potential bed that another patient could fill. It seemed as though that once we solved one thing, another issue would pop up and we would have to try and solve that. So it's always, it was always ebb and flow. It was always learn as you go. And I think, again, we've ironed out some things, but we have more work to do. Lastly, on capacity and the enormity of the difficulties that we discovered was discharge planning. We all have our discharge planning protocols, but some of the things we didn't consider are those skilled nursing facilities where uh, we would receive some of their patients. Those patients would recover, but now those extended care facilities were not accepting their residents back or they weren't accepting the residents back unless they had um, a recent COVID test done, or maybe they were COVID positive, now they're COVID negative, and they're still not accepting those patients back. Extended care facilities took an enormous hit when this all first came about. Historically, they are underfunded and undersupported. And so you can 
it's understandable that they're skittish on uh, taking these patients back. But then we had patients in the hospital that did not need to be there. And so I think going forward, again, improving our partnerships with these extended care facilities and supporting them better, going in and training them, giving them proper uh, PPE, um, helping to redesign their rooms to where they're single rooms, because a lot of those residents are cohorted. I think that's a good start in supporting those extended care facilities. So that makes our job a little better and we can better plan on how we can discharge, appropriately discharge those patients back to the, to the facilities. Supplies, again, touching back on supply chain and capacity, their staff took an enormous hit. They are small staff. Um, I don't think that we anticipated the volume of supplies that we go through and the burn rate. I don't think I've ever heard of burn rate calculators until now, and we certainly became familiar with them after a couple of weeks. Um, we had to do a lot of creative problem solving. I have to say our institution worked really, really well from the beginning in coordinating supplies with other institutions uh, around the city. Case in point was ventilators, right? We kept a, a count every day on who's using what, who needs what. Uh, we had shared our ventilators with other institutions. Other institutions shared proning, turning, and positioning systems with us when we completely ran out. Um, this is a time when we, I have never seen so many patients prone. And so, you know, I had to go in my car and go over and pick up other proning kits from other institutions. Uh, when we did get our supply in from our manufacturers, we got so much supply in that I had to store them in my office and others stored them in their office. So we've learned a lot of lessons and it all came down to economics 101 and supply and demand, right? The demand is huge. This number here is 5 million. That was a couple of days ago, the active number of cases worldwide and the supply of PPE just wasn't enough to care for those patients. And realizing that one of the issues surrounding that was that a lot of these manufacturers are overseas. And when pandemics start, they start in waves and they start in different areas of the world. And so we could have never predicted how much we would use and how much we would need. But we certainly have learned a lot. I think one of the main things that supply chain will be looking at is kind of, if you haven't moved to standardization, this does limit your products, but standardizing better and coordinating that standardization with other like centers in your community because we only have so much space, we only have so much money, but we may be able to maximize the amount of products we can harness if we collaborate with other institutions. And I think it's also important if you don't have the capabilities to have a central processing uh, storage unit among different campuses, that you would certainly benefit from that because they have bigger square footage, they can accommodate, um, sequestering of supplies more so than inside your own healthcare system walls usually can. And again, I think that lastly, you need to harness your workforce and the talents that you have inside your own healthcare institution. We relied heavily on our clinical engineering departments to help us build certain things that we needed to prone patients, specifically head positioners, when we completely ran out. You have an enormous amount of talent right in your own backyard and start harnessing that and figuring out all the various talents that people come with and use those when you start to run slow on supplies. It's there, we just didn't know it was there, but we certainly know now 
and we're going to use that in the future. Clinical course, this moves on to caring for these patients who have a disease that we've never seen before. A lot of healthcare experts themselves likened it to the influenza. Uh, myself, after about three and a half months, it is, for me, nothing like influenza. I'm not an infectious disease expert. I'm not an infectious control and prevention expert. I am just a nurse by trade who worked in critical care for 30 years. And now I work in the education field, and I have to say, these patients present so differently, their clinical course is so different, and I think we're coming to realize that the complications that we're seeing are also very, very different. Patients can range anywhere from presenting asymptomatic, 80% of the population is asymptomatic, they may have some mild symptoms, they may have no symptoms at all, to presenting as what we call silent hypoxemia. We call these happy hypoxemic patients. The majority of these patients present with saturations in the range of 60 to 70%. And we know that anything under 80% is grossly inaccurate. High lactate levels, but they're neurologically intact. They're very much able to carry on conversations with you. They seem very compensatory in terms of how they're managing their disease when they first present to the hospital. These patients primarily would go to acute care. Some would go to ICU. It just truly really depend on how they responded in the ED. Some of those patients quickly went to what I call the indolent phase where they presented really, really relatively sick to the ED. They could have been uh, either intubated or on higher amounts of support in terms of oxygen and extubated. But then within about four or five days, they really, really decompensated and they took a rapid course. This is where I think COVID-19 distinguishes itself from influenza, particularly H1N1 that we saw back in 2009, at least from my bedside experience, that these patients decline so rapidly within 24 hours. They are on full support on the ventilator. They're still not oxygenating well. They develop ARDS very, very quickly. They are on vasopressor support. They're in the ICU, for which they'll be in the ICU at least two weeks, sometimes three weeks or longer. So these are the majority of the patients that we have seen in the ICU. Lastly are those patients that present in this hyperacute phase where they probably did the right thing, or maybe they were homeless. They probably did the right thing, stayed home, tried to shelter in place, take care of themselves, but then it just got to be too much, or they were homeless and then they were brought in, and these are the patients that present extremely ill, intubated within 10 to 15 minutes of being within the emergency department, and then quickly expire within hours. These are the patients that you cannot even imagine trying saving. ECMO probably would not have worked on these patients, but again, it just kind of highlights how rapid the progression of this disease happens when patients do eventually get to the ED. Clinical course, again, complications, we saw everything from hypercoagulable disorders, seeing a lot of VTE disease, strokes in younger folks. Definitely a lot of our patients developed acute kidney injury for which they had to have renal replacement therapy. Co-infections, they can be viral or bacterial, but we primarily saw bacterial, sepsis, Nearly 100% of the patients who were intubated developed ARDS. Um, you just planned on it. Cardiomyopathy developed in a lot of the patients. That disease 
probably developed towards the later ends, probably within a week of being in the hospital, not on the front ends. Again, a lot of our patients need invasive pressure support. For the patients who died, the majority did die of isolated respiratory failure. Some died of respiratory and circulatory failure together, but some people, we just didn't know what the cause of death was. It wasn't respiratory failure. Uh, it could have been a combination of other things as well. It could have been renal failure. It could have been underlying comorbidities that they're already living with. We know hypertension contributes a lot to patients who have COVID-19 and their death rates. So it's, a, it's an umbrella to encompass all those other reasons. The hospital length of stay for these uh, patients is about 21 to 22 days. That's median time. And the time from illness to onset to death is about 18.5 days. Now this takes into account the onset of illness for patients who find out that they're sick and they're gonna stay at home for a while and then become ill. So this is not just those who are in the hospital setting. So that is it for our first half of this two-part series. And now I will go ahead and go on to answering some questions. Thank you, Sue. For our learners, these are the references for some of the information Sue provided us with today. The slides will be available in our resource center. We will now continue to the listener Q&A. Sue, first question. Last episode, you talked about doffing and donning and storage of PPE in a hospital setting. Do you have any recommendations for those of us in home health for proper care of our PPE? That's a really good question. You know, I don't work in the home health care. When we first started this whole COVID-19 effort, our institution actually did make a lot of house surveillance, house calls and tested folks. And I think the best guidance I can give is if your company that you work for has a pandemic plan, follow that pandemic plan. If it doesn't, the best guidance I can give to you is you don't need to overworry. If your patient is a patient under investigation or is COVID positive, you would treat them with droplet contact precautions. You bring your PPE, you would go ahead and phone them and let them know ahead of time to let the family know or the patient to be in a room by themselves, have them put on a mask of themselves before you enter the house. You wear your normal PPE with disposable gown, goggles, gloves, and a mask. If they are known positive, then go ahead and utilize the N95 respirator mask. Uh, also, it would be good to ask the house you're visiting, the family or the patient, to have a garbage can outside so where you can doff your disposable gown and your gloves appropriately. If you are in a COVID positive home and you'll need to reuse your N95 because you are on the crisis phase or the contingent phase of your PPE, it just depends then you can store it in a manner, like I mentioned at the last episode, it can be in a pepper bag, it can be in a Tupperware where you can put a lid on it for reuse. The best thing is to remember is to not uh, destroy the, the form and the fit of your N95 and to make sure that it is intact and the integrity is intact before you don it again. That's probably the best advice I can give you. If this is, a home where it's not a patient who is under investigation or a person of interest or is not COVID positive, then you should be able to use standard precautions. And so if a, you walk into the home and the patient is coughing, you can ask them to put on a mask. You can put on a mask and use gloves the whole time. So that's 
probably the best guidance I can give. There are other institutions out there who have pretty robust home health care protocols in the community. I think Kaiser is one of them. So that would be an area I would look into as well to find other guidance. Sue, next question. What do you feel needs to be in place or happen for nursing students to be able to come back to the hospitals? Many schools of nursing are doing virtual SimLab via Zoom and other platforms. That too is a really good question. You're not alone. I think uh, all students, pharmacy, medicine, occupational therapy, they're doing the same thing. I'm a clinical nurse specialist, so I plan a lot of education. And for the past five months, we haven't been able to do anything. We've had to cancel all of our classes. What we can do, we do by Zoom. And we know that it's not as effective as doing it in person and having that hands-on training. I think we will have to bring students back into the hospitals because it's crucial for their education. I don't think we're there yet, but I do think uh, schools are planning for that. I do think having simulation labs open and having hands-on practice as well as working with directly with patients is also important. But I think there's gonna have to be a screening process and a health uh, surveillance process among students who do come in to work at facilities that have known COVID positive patients, especially in light of the fact, I think uh, we're gonna be moving to just assuming everyone is COVID positive before we are only uh, ruling out patients and ensuring that they're COVID positive. I think there's gonna have to be some surveillance of students to see who may be high risk, uh, who may be low risk, and who can come and uh, continue their education safely within the hospital setting. I think it's gonna come. I think it's in the planning stages. I just don't know if it's gonna happen by this coming fall. Some institutions are planning on opening up in the fall. Some institutions still are gonna do remote learning. So it, it really does vary from institution to institution, but I do think we're heading in that direction because we have to bring students back into the healthcare setting. Thank you, Sue, for your contribution to the program. As a reminder, to claim CME or CE credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. Don't forget to access our resource center at covid19.dkbmed.com. There you'll find information on the latest COVID-19 data and statistics, medical society guidelines, and resources in Spanish. Please be on the lookout for our next activity next Wednesday. We will send out an email when it becomes available. Again, thank you for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thank you again, Sue, for your contribution to the program.